0: Hello, RoyCast listeners. Last week, we recorded a bonus episode about The Righteous Gemstones. As you'll hear us discuss, we had so much to talk about that we didn't get into our analysis of that show for almost 90 minutes. We're releasing the first half of the conversation today as its own episode, and our Gemstones discussion will follow next week. That's why the conversation in this episode ends a bit abruptly thanks everyone for listening thanks to gabby thanks to producer dan black and especially to our guest marie bertineau if you like what you hear please leave a rating and a review on itunes or apple podcasts on with the show Welcome back to ROYCAST, the original Succession podcast. My name is Brendan, and joining me tonight, as always, is my co-host, Gabby. Hey, Gabby.
1: Hey, everyone.
0: We have a ton to get to today. The outline that we put together for this bonus episode was 20-something pages long, and I think if we recorded all of it, we would have our first ever uh, four-hour podcast episode. So we're going to try to dive right in. Um, Before we do that, we're going to do our first, not quite a tangent, um, but our first little sidebar of the episode to talk about just recent Succession news. We're going to try to do a really quick download on this. Um, We know that Succession Season 4 is currently filming uh in new york maybe by the time this releases they'll they'll be out of there but we know that cast members are being cited around queens etc we're just guessing from the shooting schedule we don't know for sure but we'll probably see season four sometime early 2023 is what we're guessing right now probably january february probably no new succession in 2022
1: early i'm thinking maybe a little later i'm thinking like march april
0: they can make us wait for it at this point. I mean, they have, there's they're churning out so much stuff, and they know that people back, are going back
1: to ten they, episodes.
0: People are dying to see it now. Yeah, yeah. So they can make us wait for it. They can put us on the, uh, the West the West World calendar. Uh, the other big piece of news is that the Emmy nominations came out, and Gabby, this is really your turf, so I'm going to let you. Uh, I'm I'm setting I'm <laughs> setting a timer. I'm not going to tell you Thanks. how much time is on the timer, but I'm setting an <laughs> imaginary timer and just whatever pressure you feel. I was going to uh,
1: say, doing, I'm so glad that we had to push this episode recording back several times for various reasons. So that we could get the Emmy nods and so we could spend a good 90 minutes talking about it. So no, it's Brendan's absolute favorite topic. Yeah, no, for real succession got 25 total nominations for the Emmys this year, um, 14 for acting, which is the most ever. Um, J. Smith Cameron and Arian Mouyad, first-time nominees, so nice to see, you know, the OGs uh, included there, Jay Smith Cameron in uh, Supporting Actress, Arian in um, Guest Actor, seven guest spot nods, um, <laughs> excluding the two that Brendan and I found the most compelling, but, you know, such is life. Other nods, writing for the finale, uh, three directing nods, episodes three, seven, and nine, production design for episode seven, casting, of course, music composition for Bertel, uh sound mixing for episode seven, two, uh, editing nominations, episodes eight and nine. Yeah, lots of love for, for Kendall, Too Much Birthday, Ruck, of course, unceremoniously snubbed once again. The big drama, I think, will be Matt Mac and uh, Kieran Culkin. I think that's going to be a tough one. That's might tear the fandom apart. Uh.
0: <laughs> is that a, is that a new nickname? You said Mac.
1: Matt Mac. That's Matt what the kids. That's, that's what some confusing. of the kids. When
0: you, when you say that, next to kids Culkin, I, that. I feel like you're talking about Mac. Culkin. Right. So that's, that's actually
1: not good next to a, next to a Culkin. Yeah um but other than that yeah it's a cute it's a cute nickname uh, i feel like uh jeremy strong is kind of a shoe in um seems like yeah the big drama will be can sarah snook pull it off i think she will um and then we'll see what happens with the split vote in the supporting and guest uh categories but yeah uh it's too bad about um our friends justin kirk and linda emond shout out to them we really loved what they did in season three
0: yeah justin kirk we've Talked a ton about that amazing performance he gave in season three. Um yeah, I think that Jesse Armstrong is probably a shoe-in for writing again for the finale. Um, I was surprised was there
1: the- wasn't another writing nod for Keonti Shire. I thought it kind of has <laughs> yeah. they kind of how many, how many, how many times can hand. we nominate
0: this show within the same categories? <laughs> um I'll, I will say you mentioned Sarah Snooks for who's up for supporting actress in a drama. Um, something that made me really happy was recognition for uh, Rhea Seahorn, who plays yes. Kim Wexler on Better Call Saul, also in that category. And that's another show I think that is packed with just journeyman actors and character performances, and is so rich with personality and detail. And you know, not everybody can get recognized. So when you have a show, I think that's as rich as Succession. There's a feeling that like you know, there's never enough wealth to go right. around, and some <laughs> of our favorites are not going to get you know recognized or shouted out but that's the role of you know the viewers and the critics and you know the podcasters to shout out the uh Uh, and i mean it's it's
1: it's still still super unreal to see the show recognized this way just you know thinking back to a few years ago like just the absolute volume of this stuff um is remarkable and yeah it's it's very funny right now on social media to to uh Follow some of the people roaming around New York, catching production in action. You get like a two second clip of Tom on the phone, and everyone's like speculating about. Yeah,
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah it's all, it's all the, it's all the jokes about how Succession just looks like those stock images of guys in boardrooms or whatever. Yeah. It's like, oh my god, we, I caught a some, Tom. Someone's getting into a car. A hotel. <laughs> yeah, someone's getting into a car. Exactly. It's literally um, well, like
1: the show about people in rooms on the phone. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So today's topic, so this is another bonus episode, and we are here to discuss another related work in the succession bibliography. Um, I'm going to confess up front that we are cheating a little bit. Um, The last time we did a bonus episode, we were talking about the David Fincher film, The Game, which was a work where we could draw really clear, bright lines of influence where you could see this is how the opening credits and the title sequence is something that clearly gets lifted for succession. You can see in the music there's things that are getting picked up there that are really direct nods, direct lifts. Um, we're going to talk about something today that's a more contemporary work so we're not going to be saying this influenced this or this influenced that but we're going to be talking about some projects that I think allow us to get into some similar I think thematic territory and some questions that surface a lot on this podcast about questions of you know how comedy and drama and audience identification um, and using you know drama to narrativize a political reality. Um, and to do that, we are joined today by our very good friend, Marie Bertineau. How are you doing, Marie?
2: I'm great. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. I'm very, very excited. I'm excited, too. I have to say, uh, I had never watched Succession, and Brendan asked me to come on the show to talk about a different topic. And then I started watching it, and I'm halfway through season two. So it's a, a testament to the quality <laughs> of the show, I think. Uh, I, I still stand by the reason I didn't watch it in the first place, which is that I think that contemporary New York is aesthetically not interesting. but it turns out the show not doesn't wrong about that. Yeah. The show doesn't really have a lot to do with that. It is kind of a no. series of stock images um, that still has a lot of well, no, it's really compa- it's like incredibly compelling. And again, I rarely watch any TV shows except for some of the ones we're about to talk about. and uh, yeah, really, really like it, big
0: fan. We got another one. We, we lassoed another yeah, one into the to, to the succession viewership. Uh, no, Marie and I started talking a lot last summer about um, The White Lotus, because I think I, the main reason was that I, I knew you were a partisan of the works of, of Mike White, as I am. I think we had some fun, productive disagreements about that show, but we had a lot of conversations that touched on kind of similar territory that we're going to get into today, because our topic today is The Righteous Gemstones, the HBO series um, starring and produced by Danny McBride. Uh, Jody Hill and David Gordon Green Um, and we are going to be talking about really this whole shared universe of the other shows and movies that these collaborators have done together and we're going to take a sort of a you know 40,000 foot view to look at you know what are the sort of recurring concerns the recurring you know narrative and formal strategies that these filmmakers are using Um, because it all adds up to I think Uh, It's something this sort of collective body of work is something I've been following and watching I guess really since you know observe and report in like 2009 and been watching and following these guys pretty much as long as I've been I think like a conscientious viewer um so it's something I'm really excited to uh, to dive into and of course a lot of this stuff is just very very funny so I think uh uh we're gonna talk we're gonna go back first I think like all the way back to the origins uh of this stuff to talk about how these guys got together it occurred to me <laughs> when I was doing prep for the, when we were doing prep for this that we never came up with like a catchy name for like what we call this filmmaking unit or this group right. of collaborators I was thinking the same thing yeah <laughs> <laughs> you get into tricky issues of like uh, trying to ascribe intentionality and like authorship when it's not really clear who like the prime mover is in a lot of these projects where the key ideas are coming from um yeah. you know we may talk it's like some of these ideas seem like they seem to come when Jody Hill is a little bit more in the driver's seat or when David Gordon Green is in the driver's seat or when Jenny McBride is in the driver's seat um, but it, for the most part, it's, uh, it's it's an interesting collaboration because it seems like these guys uh, feed off different energies uh, from each other. But they all come from the North Carolina School of the Arts and from the School of Filmmaking, um, which is where Green, uh, McBride, Hill, and uh, their collaborator Ben Best all graduated. Um, I don't know if people are really familiar with the North Carolina School of the Arts, but it is this kind of sneaky, underrated force in American filmmaking of the last 20 years, and particularly independence. um, some like indie directors i've been following for a long time who came out of there include like chad Hardigan, Craig Zobel Aaron Katz and Jeff Nichols the performing arts school actually turns out a lot more recognizable alumni um, some of the names I jotted down you can look up the Wikipedia list but I mean Anthony Mackie Lucas Hedges Jennifer Ely Tom Hulse Anna Camp Jada Pinkett-Smith Dane DeHaan I mean the list goes on Those are these young actors who are still like a big part of I know, think it is linked to U.S. Yeah, yeah.
2: sorry it's, uh, I'm just looking UNC? right now the North Carolina yeah. School of the you? Arts in Winston-Salem was exactly, established yeah. in 1963 by the North Carolina General Assembly is the nation's first state-supported residential art school so it is a constituent institution of the unc system and it is in winston of the the unc yeah and it's in winston-salem with the flagship Mm -hmm. the flagship campus
0: and i think the the important thing to to underline there with the um with these guys specifically is that all of them although obviously mcbride i think became most famous as an actor and a comedic actor and a leading man um, and Hill is an actor too. They all kind of went there for filmmaking and they all sort of went out to the West Coast to pursue filmmaking and directing and writing their own projects uh, together. The first of them to really make a name for themselves is David Gordon Green, who directs a movie called George Washington that comes out in 2000 and is this very, like, kind of lo-fi, independent drama set in the South. Um, It gets a lot of comparisons to um, 70s filmmakers like Terrence Malick, this very, like, sort of lyrical, poetic style, this very montage-based style that Green is working in. And so he gets a bigger budget and a a bigger cast and goes off to make a film in 2003, which is really where I think the Danny McBride narrative starts, um, which is a movie called All the Real Girls. Um, This is a romantic drama that I think is... One of the reasons it's most interesting to look back on, this is a movie I'm very fond of. I saw this when I was in high school. Um, I have very good memories of it. But it's most notable now, I think, because of its cast, which is packed with a lot of interesting faces and names that would go on to, I think, significant careers. The leads are Zoe Deschanel, who obviously became quite a celebrity as an actress and a singer. Um, you have Paul Schneider, who's probably most familiar to people as Mark Brentanowitz from the first couple seasons of Parks and Recreation. Um, you also have in there Shay Wiggum, who is going to recur in uh, this uh, uh, filmmaking unit and these guys' projects. And I think is kind of, I kind of think of Shay Wiggum as like one of the last of like a dying breed of just like old school journeyman character actors. He just pops up in all different kinds of stuff and is always good. And he just has a sort of interesting face and presence um, of a kind you don't see very much anymore. He's also somebody a great, else who... uh
2: HBO stable guy. He pops yes, up in all their stuff. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I mean, casting directors, I think, love Shea Wickham, quite obviously, for good reason. Um, But uh, notably, we also want to point out that uh, Danny McBride's acting debut is in this movie. Um, And Danny McBride was working in Hollywood, as he describes it, he was working crew gigs and like PA gigs and stuff. And he was writing his own scripts and stuff at night and just trying to make ends meet when his college friend Dave Green calls him and says, hey, I had an actor drop out of this movie. Can you come play this part? And he says, I know you don't have any experience. You're not really an actor, but I know you and I know what I need from this role. And if you trust me, I trust you and I'll get you through this part. And so he plays the role of bust ass is the nickname his character has. (laughs) His his character is credited as having a real name in the movie, but he's nicknamed bust bust ass. And he's. And he's just kind of he's on the, he's a little bit on the periphery of the movie as kind of the comic relief, but it's he, he's got a little bit of a sweet side to him, and that's but that's the first acting gig that he takes. I, mean, Gabby, you actually watched all the Real Girls um, when we were prepping for this. What did you think of the movie?
1: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> tonally, it was not what I was expecting while preparing for a Danny McBride podcast. I've been I'd been watching like Eastbound and Down and like gorging on Vice Principals, and then all of a sudden, there's like this kind of like very early aughts lo-fi style rom-com it was good I really I liked it 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 made me sad because I wasn't expecting it and it was just the kind of movie that makes me sad um but very of its time like I can understand how it became a nostalgia watch for you Brendan and um it was cool to see McBride in sort of like this understated role where it was like you know he's, he's sort of my experiences of of viewing him as an actor he's playing this these oafish characters so it was kind of disarming just to see him play kind of like this this regular dude um you can really see his natural charm and how it was a jumping off point for him and also fun to see of course schneider and and deschanel and um patricia clarkson as well another face that wasn't super famous at that point but
2: um yeah they have an eye for these for these people Speaking of jumping off points, if you really want to get into the McBride lore, uh, his first uh, his first press notice was actually in the newspaper of his uh, hometown in Virginia that wrote up his high school play that he was in, uh, very favorably, <laughs> and <laughs> noted as a side note that for a different high school play that he had done, he wrote the script himself, and a lot of people asked for copies because they assumed that it was from a professional playwright, Uh, but it was just something that that he had done. So he did start writing and performing early. It said he acted in that play with his sister and they did really well together. So I guess she didn't pursue uh, an acting career, but that would have been interesting too
0: yeah so the way McBride tells it he um, basically just went back to doing what he was doing after this he went back to working crew jobs did not pursue acting did not think of it as something that he was interested in um, but what this led to directly was he gets another call from one of his old classmates Jody Hill who has written a movie called The Foot Fist Way and the way McBride tells this again is that Hill said you're the only person I know who has been in a movie do you want to star <laughs> in this movie um which sounds pretty outlandish, but when you watch the Foot Fist Way, um, you know, which I had not seen in a while, and I rewatched it um, just the other day, um, it's this weird combination of like it do, it is very amateurish. Like uh, the the acting is like the acting is really not polished. None of the uh, performers in it really seem like seasoned pros or anything like that. It does not have the same cast that all the Real Girls has. Hill is in it, and it's, it's probably like one. It's actually one of the bigger. Speaking roles that Hill ha- that Hill has in one of his own projects, and um, Ben Best actually has a much bigger role in that. And actually, rewatching the Foot Fist Way just made me really sad about Best, who actually passed away last year um, at the age of 47. And he is just he's wonderful in the Foot Fist Way. He's extremely funny. He's playing uh, this guy. Uh, what is it? Chuck the Truck. Uh, this uh, sort of like B movie star that. Um, McBride's character idolizes and he's really I think compelling as this guy who is as much of a disaster as all the other characters in the movie but in a more confident way
2: do you uh do y'all have any thoughts on the um I guess the southern martial arts slash Chuck Norris craze that that movie is clearly inspired by
0: (laughs) yeah I mean like the the Chuck the truck that's an obvious Chuck Norris joke Right. I mean, like, I mean, I just remember the that being like one of the first Internet memes, right? Like all the Chuck Norris jokes. Um, Taekwondo so was, was like something that was in the air, It's
2: just such a thing. Uh, when I was a kid, it was like in um, gosh, one of my best friends in elementary school was a black belt at our local Taekwondo studio. And I would go and watch her like wow. break the boards. And then my brother also did it. uh, And at one point, Chuck Norris came to visit the studio in suburban Richmond, Virginia, and it was like a big deal. Like it was a whole cottage industry thing of him going to strip mall uh, martial arts studios with the kids for photo ops and stuff. Um, I don't know, it's just a really, the movie is a really funny time capsule of that because it's pretty realistic of someone like that going to these low rent places and you know, maybe getting put up by uh, one of the local teachers and sleeping with his wife and ruining his life, this <laughs> and that, could happen.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. So to to just briefly describe the premise, the premise of the movie is that McBride plays. This is like the first of the sort of like archetypal McBride characters, or you might call them Jody Hill characters, because Jodie Hill also evinces like obviously a lot of authorship over this movie and subsequent projects that have a lot in common with build and build on what's in the Foot Fist Way. But he plays this sort of oafish taekwondo instructor whose marriage is in shambles um and is uh yeah he's fixated on trying to get uh chuck the truck to make a personal appearance at his uh his dojo where he uh where he rules with an iron fist this is where we start to talk a little bit about the vision of the south that pops up in all these projects because all these guys have sort of made it their mission that they're not going to work just in la but they're going to actually come back to where they're from they're going to come back to the south and they're going to make projects there all these guys hail from sort of like different sectors of the south uh hill i think is from north carolina from concord green was born in little rock arkansas and grew up in texas uh, mcbride is from statesboro georgia um and i think currently and he,
2: he currently grew at up least in,
0: mcbride i think
2: in virginia too so,
0: yeah and currently i think mcbride um uh has property in, in South Carolina, which I think is where he mainly resides now. Um, but I mean, yeah, I did grow up also down the street uh, from uh, a Taekwondo <laughs> dojo, whatever you want to call it, in a strip mall. I took, I think I took like, I took like a few weeks of karate lessons as a kid. At one point, I got my yellow belt at one of these places. Um, you know, not really sure why. My mom had a free trial or something. They wanted me to try it out, but it didn't, it didn't stick. Um, but it's this, uh, it's this specific vision of sort of like the strip mall south. I don't know what you would call it. There's this, these sort of like small cities that are essentially suburbs um, of larger urban areas, um, like where I grew up in Alpharetta, Georgia, which is like 30, 40 minutes north of Atlanta. Um, and, or, where, or where you grew up, uh, in Richmond, Richmond, Virginia. Um, these places that uh, are, are very suburban and you know don't have a ton of like culture but they're just populated by you know they're basically it's where dentists and lawyers live pretty much and i'm sure in richmond you know like dc contractors that kind there of thing. there
1: are dentists and lawyers in <laughs> blue states also
2: yeah they're really everywhere <laughs> but, you
1: know no they are
0: but i mean like it's exclusively those people you know what i'm saying
2: <laughs> i know i know brendan you this is funny. said everyone uh, from i don't know The Northeast, or especially from California, seems to think that Richmond is a commuter city for DC. I have never once met anybody who commutes to DC because, you know. Nobody? Okay. Well, you know how in Europe, uh, 100 miles is a long time. They're not even that close. Yeah. In America, 100 (laughs) years is a long time. On the East Coast, a 20 minute drive is a long time. And then, you know. Yeah. In the South, or in the South, a 30 minute drive is a long time. And, uh, on the west coast and 30 years is a long time that's our little mini version of that i mean i know plenty of people who commute as long as the drive to dc from richmond here in la every day myself included at times not anymore but yeah it's uh, yeah no that's that's just totally unheard of out there you know (laughs) although atlanta has actually the worst traffic that i've ever experienced personally
1: what do you think about this um, sort of, yeah, this dedication to these southern settings and not wanting to, you it know rocks. kind of just default to LA, and New York?
2: Yeah. Well, Danny, Mc- I mean McBride has said, and I think the others share this view that LA is creatively uninspiring for them because it's so recursive. and like it is the movies and the movies reflect the vision of reality that it was originally made up for LA. So it's like it's very bizarre. And also, you're around people who are in the business all the time, and when you're driving around, you know, McBride specifically said once, like, you're driving past billboards for 20 other shows just to go to work to think about your show, which is more (laughs) stymieing than inspiring um, to him. So, like, going back to where you're from, I think... Lets you separate from all that, to have original ideas. And it's so different culturally, and the look of it is so different. It's also just inspiring on its own, I think. Like the it's weird because I think doubling in the South, which has become a huge thing in recent years in Georgia, North Carolina, yeah. and Louisiana, doesn't work because of the quality of light uh, being filtered through all the humidity. Uh, unless Wait, it's sorry, what what doesn't work? Doubling? I'm not, yeah. Like location-doubling. So, like,
0: uh, yeah.
2: Okay. Like, okay. weirdly, just Bizarro Land, you know, it used to be LA stood in for everywhere, and now everywhere else is standing in for LA. Like, the third Bill and Ted movie tried to have uh, their <laughs> Inland Empire suburb in Georgia, and it just was so oh, odd. Might
0: go. My go-to example of this is the Shane Black movie, The Nice Guys, where Atlanta was supposed to be 70s LA, I think.
2: That worked because the haze of humidity stood in well for the haze of 70s smog. I don't know if you watch a lot of 70s TV, but like a a humid summer day in Louisiana looks like a um, smog-choked day in the Rockford Files
0: yeah yeah it's true i mean and there are other projects i mean like i think of like baby driver was one that shot in atlanta and edgar Wright made a big deal about like atlanta playing itself in that movie right well
2: yeah and it would have been a terrible double for la because it just looks nothing like it you know you have to of course do and again having gone to atlanta one time and experienced the traffic there i think that it is it does work for a movie about a getaway driver um
0: I mean, but that's one of the biggest lies that Baby Driver tells is it barely addresses the problem of gridlock traffic know, in Atlanta. Right? Well, there's there's actually magic. not a ton of car chases in Baby Driver. Um, one of the best scenes in that movie is a foot chase. Anyway, that's another huge tangent. Yeah, um, but anyway, so on.
2: but the South, when it's being the South, is great because it's like, it's so... I mean, eastbound and down and the foot fist way, they really amp up the the emerald greens and like the huge white puffy clouds that are just towering over everything because, you know, for three months of the year, there could be a thunderstorm every single day. When it's playing itself, it looks amazing and is extremely different from the usual fair that's shot in LA or New York.
0: Yeah. And I think they pay close attention to like what the actual just like day to day observable like demographic and otherwise kind of reality is in these places, as opposed to some like imaginary LA version where, you know, Atlanta is supposed to stand in for somewhere else. And hence it becomes no place at all. Right here. It is like a very specific area that has like specific makeup and specific cultures. Yeah.
2: My other favorite thing is um, sitcoms that are supposed to be set in some any town where people are worried about validating their parking. Sorry, (laughs) that only happens, you know, at the Beverly center and the Grove TV writers, (laughs) not a problem for for middle america
0: so from the foot fist way the foot fist way um gets picked up by gary sanchez productions which is the shingle for adam mckay and will ferrell um and they uh they help distribute the foot fist way and they help these guys get their next couple projects one of which is shooting the pilot for what was then called pe but became eastbound and down for hbo before we talk about that, I want to talk about the movie that Hill makes that uh, comes out in 2009 called Observe and Report, which stars Seth Rogen as a mall cop, a mall cop named Ronnie. Everybody loves to talk about how this movie came out the same year, coincidentally, as Paul Blart Mall Cop, and the movies are about as different, you know, tonally and subject matter as you could imagine. Um, but this is the story of a guy basically who works this low-rent security job at a mall and is obsessed with becoming a real cop. And he's obsessed with breaking this big case, which is catching this flasher who's at the mall. And I think Observe and Report is really significant because it provides, I think, a pretty clear template that you can see kind of recur through the next few Hill McBride projects. Um, and, and that's the specific narrative outline where you have this guy who is this real outsider this really antisocial character who basically repulses everybody around him uh and in the cl- and by the end of the movie he commits this sort of extreme act in in uh observe and report it's this extreme act of violence the punchline is that he just shows up after he's been fired from his job uh and just shoots the flasher point blank in the chest with a gun that he's not supposed to have um, and because he this act of violence is perpetuated against the right person he is celebrated for it and he gets his job back and he gets the girl and he gets to have this triumphant press conference where he tells off uh, you know the cop played by Ray Liotta who'd been holding him back and this is the sort of you know twist or like this torquing of the redemption narrative um, that recurs in the next few projects in Eastbound and in Vice Principles specifically. And I think that it's a really, it's a really, it's a really good movie to look at just in terms of trying to figure out what the thematic and narrative preoccupations of these guys are. And I thought it was important to talk about. Marie, I think you watched it for the first time recently. Do you want to talk about your reaction to it? Yeah,
2: I sure did. Um, It's, I used to work at a mall in Virginia, so it was pretty, uh, you know, uh, bringing me back a little bit, although nothing like that ever happened to me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs>
0: not a uh, not not one of the uh, this happened to my buddy Eric. Type no, numbers. no,
2: I never shot a flasher point blank or uh, anything anything of the sort when I was That's selling good. That's good. women's coats. Um, but you know, it was good. It was like it was kind of a trifle, you know. Uh, it was <laughs> well, no, it's it's interesting because it takes some big swings and is expensive in some ways, while being you know extremely cheap in others. I really appreciated that. Some stuff that was clearly just not working was aggressively edited down, so it could at least be 90 minutes. It was a fun movie, kind of a funny movie. I don't think it was as fully realized as some of their later stuff. I think maybe because Seth Rogen is an odd choice to me for that character. I know he was the biggest thing going, if you're even tangentially affiliated with those actors at this time, Um, but... In response to the question posed in our outline, I I think it should have been McBride. But people didn't know him and, you know, he didn't really come into his own until until Kenny Powers. And he does have a very, very funny little scene in Observe and Report. But, like, it's, you know, it's a pretty good movie.
0: Yeah, I think that question of whether it should have been McBride is interesting. Because I think that although Rogan is not totally convincing in the part of this, like, violent... Um, antisocial loner um, that's sort of what helps keep the movie at all palatable I think is the fact that he has this kind of softness to him that is not totally convincing in the part whereas if you had somebody like McBride who was a bit more you know, willing to lean into that more alienating edge, it might have been you know a bit more shocking than it was. Um, as is, I don't know that the movie totally works in either direction. It's just kind of, I think, admirably unpleasant. Um, but the plot outline that I was describing, um, I think, is interesting because it's basically Taxi Driver, right? And there's a bunch of explicit references to Taxi Driver in the movie and the voiceover that Ronnie Ronnie's character delivers. Um, you know, the ending. Is basically the ending of taxi driver where travis bickle goes on this violent rampage but because it's against the right people he's celebrated for it and he becomes a hero vigilante instead of being further ostracized and there's all these other there's other references to scorsese too interestingly that i clocked on rewatch like the scene where um there's this whole subplot where colette wolf who was I think, jody hill's wife at the time um is playing this uh this other uh, mall worker who's got like a a busted leg and she's being bullied by her boss, played by Patton Oswalt in the scene where Ronnie goes into the back to like uh, threaten Patton Oswalt is really shot just like the shot in Goodfellas where uh, Henry goes to beat up Karen's neighbor. And I like Scorsese as like a comparison here because something that's going to come up over and over again is that these guys are really enthralled to, among many other influences because they're quite film literate, um, the 70s, like, new Hollywood filmmakers, and I think Scorsese is, is huge for them, especially in just establishing, you know, this template, you know, when you talk about, um, you know, the, the sort of satirical thrust that a lot of Scorsese's movies have that comes from, you know, being inside the point of view that's being critiqued, whether it's, like, you know, Goodfellas, you know, really exhilarating in the mob lifestyle uh so that you can you know feel the rush of it at the same time that you know it's being sort of presented as you know something that's obviously amoral and Scorsese's a lot more of a moralist than these filmmakers um but just being able to situate yourself inside these characters and being able to present it as something that's like funny and exhilarating um, is I think the satirical impulse that uh, Hill is really in touch with as a director and I think it's important to establish that before we move forward and talk about uh, some of the other stuff. Do you want to talk about um, Marie, some of the other filmmaking influences that uh, oh, Hill yeah. is dealing with? Sure.
2: I mean, something that I think they've said and that I kind of feel is they're really influenced by by B-movies and exploitation which is, I mean, they've said they love horror which is, you know, basically exploitation and often a b-movie uh, and it's such a southern medium or subgenre too like the whole uh, drive-in movie being a uh, cheap grindhouse or Burt Reynolds car movie is um, those movies would play for years all around the south on its second run drive-ins uh, when my during covid a local drive-in reopened near my parents and the two movies that they had to show were jaws and uh i'm completely blanking because all i can think of is eastbound and down which is the song from it
0: are you talking about a uh, Yeah, and the bandit yeah, right? the bandit.
2: yeah. so yeah. they had they had Smokey and the bandit on hand still because as a southern drive-in that was one of the most popular movies um and all these like there were i don't know if you guys are familiar with uh 1970s trucker exploitation movies, but there were tons of them. Smoking the Bandit is Smoking the Bandit is, but one. But there were like just cheap movies about a truck chase or convoy with like a light crime plot and some um, stupid elements, like a chimpanzee, as as is the case with uh, Clint Eastwood's Any Which Way But Loose and the sequel um, Any Which Way You Can. I've only seen one. But, uh, you've only you've
0: only seen any which way I'll, you can I right?
2: know I've only seen any which way but loose and then I think the sequels every which way you can or something like that but yeah just a monkey a truck a redneck guy a gun um, and the equivalent in 1970s dollars of like one or eight hundred thousand dollars maybe up to five million again equivalent but yeah the kind of Southern fried exploitation movie, where there are very few consequences a lot of violence everything is dialed up to the max uh there's a bunch of vulgarity and sex and it's meant to play to you know a rowdy drive-in
1: audience something i forgot like re-watching these shows and watching some of them for the first time is like just like how grotesque the violence is and sometimes it, it just like yeah. it pops up completely unexpectedly and it, it's something just like ex- like you said just like extremely vulgarized and you're like what and that makes perfect sense that, but yeah. that the, the b movie yeah. grindhouse type thing it's- it, 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 it's, it's it so has similar. this
2: exploitation DNA, which I think they really they really glory in at points when it's time to use blood squibs and gore props and prosthetics that, yeah, are obviously fake, but look hilarious. Um, yeah, I mean, it's toned down in gemstones, but... It uh, is, but they do some of it, for in, sure. I mean... They, they definitely still do it. it. It's yeah. more than just gross-out humor for its own sake. It's, it's kind of this, uh, yeah, this exploitation thing that I think is very fun and culty and i think you just have to have a certain mentality to appreciate it and want to do it but it's um in in many ways it's hard yeah. it's culturally southern i mean you could talk about the um you know this this thing of the dionysian versus bacchanalian art it's very much bacchanalian art uh in, in many ways you know it's a little bit heady but it's also very much about the experiences and the entertainment that comes from this lowbrow thrust
0: yeah i think that was the uh goddard adage right all you need for a movie is a monkey in a truck i think that was what he said <laughs> Uh, it's interesting to think about, you know, this sort of exploitation audience and how Observe and Report kind of represents this like very brief, maybe sort of crossover with that like Apatow strain of comedy that everybody was obsessed with as like, you know, bringing vulgarity back to the forefront of American movies. But it was also, you know, within this packaging that was extremely often traditional and wholesome and quite conservative um, in terms of like the, st- the style of movies that were being made that all essentially fit, you know, a kind of classical romantic comedy framework. Um, and then I think ultimately the direction that these guys go in is that, you know, even though they're very one thing that really helps I think their work be so successful is be- is how literate they are they're able to parody genres so effectively and that specific thing that observe and report does whether it does it as successfully as some of their later works where you can show somebody who's absolutely Reprehensible and do all these outrageous things within this exploitation framework But then put them through the traditional stations of this like three-act redemptive hero's journey and say okay, he's forgiven at the end and the big punchline is like wait what we just saw him do all this insane stuff and now he's a hero and this is the thing that happens over and over again in their work is just like watch the stuff that these people can get away with that will allow them to get away with
2: yeah i think it's great i mean i think it's pretty effective it satirizes traditional narrative structure really well while also just leaning into doing whatever they want i think it's funny to um It's always weird when people say they're influenced by or satirizing Scorsese because like maybe the the plot outline on paper is similar but the you know uh, actual production of the visually nobody can touch him um, but it, it you know it's I don't know where I was going with that but I guess I was going to complain about Joker and how it has nothing in common with Taxi Driver <laughs> except for a plot summary on paper <laughs> but same with Observe and Report I mean I see how they started there but like I don't know. It is interesting to see him get complete and total redemption versus complete and total like punishment or a fallen state. One could possibly talk about how taxi driver is a bit it's a bit catholic, a bit a bit calvinist or whatever Paul yeah. Schrader is where he's a man who's corrupted by the external forces of sin and by the end he's completely a creature of sin versus uh the a little, a little bit more, um, let's say, Protestant uh, conception of somebody who has all that stuff bounce off of him and comes out on top because, you know, he's, he's saved. I think all of their heroes actually are defined by that quality where they embody this sort of semi-holy-fool archetype where the world bounces yes. off of them and nothing mm-hmm. really gets through there, nothing changes them
0: well let's keep that in mind as we move on to maybe the sort of like picaresque in there uh in this broader filmography which is eastbound and down um eastbound and down is probably where i think Dan mcbride really becomes like a major kind of like star in his own right i think he had he'd had, had supporting roles in pineapple express and tropic thunder, which, tropic I think both, thunder yeah. which i think we're both summer of 2008 and eastbound and down i think premieres in 2009 which is when i was in college um and so the first place i encountered eastbound and down was like in college and you know you can imagine the kinds of guys in college that are watching eastbound and down you know it's <laughs> you know we, we debated this a little bit but i think one of the big you know influences at least production wise on eastbound and down in terms of like why would hbo green light this is like entourage it's very much like being pitched i think to the same audience um in term at least in terms of like marketing and premise and everything right. i don't think that's what hill and company are going for no. not that it weren't.
2: it was but we
1: we know how hbo marketing you know d- decides to do their own thing
0: yeah precisely um eastbound and down is this um So I I, I can't imagine anybody's not familiar with these bone down, but uh, McBride plays Kenny Powers, who is this ex major league pitcher who basically gets himself tossed out of the major leagues after becoming a free agent and moves back in with his brother and uh, starts uh, coaching PE at the local high school. Um, And uh, he's there to sort of get go after his old flame, April, played by Katie Mixon, um, and also try to get his major league career back.
1: Yeah. So I first watched Eastbound and Down um, also when it aired. I was in college. Um Brendan, you were in college too, are not you? Younger than me. I guess I, I, I guess I, we, I, I, was I was guess fresh, we did. I was have a an freshman overlap. in 09. Yeah. We had an overlap. Yeah. Um and yeah, like at first I was like, "Oh no, this is just going to be sort of like uh entourage type, like leery, male gaze But yeah, not Not so much. So I I watched the first season and immediately the character of Kenny Powers reminded me of John Rocker, um, who was this major league baseball pitcher who was sort of uh, infamous hothead and went on this rant in 1999 talking about um, the possibility of playing for either the Yankees or the Mets. And he said, uh, imagine having to take the seven train to the ballpark. Looking like you're riding through Beirut next to some kid with purple hair, next to some queer with AIDS, right next to some dude who just got out of jail for the fourth time, right next to some 20-year-old mom with four kids. It's depressing. The biggest thing I don't like about New York are the foreigners. You can walk an entire block in Times Square and not hear anybody speaking English. Asians and Koreans and Vietnamese and Indians and Russians and Spanish people and everything up there. How the hell did they get in this country? So this was a major league baseball pitcher, 1999. 1999? 1999. So you know, yeah, he managed to stay in the league until 2005. And then he um, went on Survivor San Juan del Sur with his girlfriend. <laughs> but listen, so it always reminded me of the, of, of, like this, maybe this is like where uh, McBride got the idea, sort of. Because this was a huge controversy. No. They were like, "He's not based but on I, anyone I,
2: specific."
1: I actually am looking right now at Wikipedia because I just wanted to make sure I got John Rocker's bio details right, and it says at the very bottom of. Uh, uh, Rocker's movie and television appearances, though not directly based on Rocker, Danny McBride said that Kenny Powers, the main protagonist of the HBO series Eastbound and Down, that the picture was more or less an inspiration of the character. And that's from NPR. Um, I think they became 2000-
0: familiar with him after the fact. Like, he and Hill have both said that they right. really didn't know anything about baseball when they started making it. But I think the broader point is, like, this is just, like, a type of guy that exists. Exactly, yeah. Right?
1: It's, it's it's totally a type of guy. And it's, uh, it's prescient for what was to come in the aughts with, um, you know... The election of Obama and post nine uh, eleven, you know, racial and moral hysteria and whatnot. Yeah. And I just I remember as, as a native New Yorker, people being really, really infuriated by these comments. Um, and so when I kind of uh, started watching the show, I was like, you know, just sort of expecting it to be. Well, something it's sort
0: different of, it's sort of like ugly american humor right i mean like another thread you could connect it to is borat which came out in 2006 but mm. it's this whole thread of like yeah you know like hollywood being kind of ashamed of like the Bushy or whatever and like looking for ways to sort of like lampoon american bigotry and stuff and there is a whole interesting thread in eastbound and down which is produced by will Farrell and will Farrell has an appearance appears several times in the series as ashley schaefer um this very like sort of like rick flair-esque <laughs> southern stereotype that It's just like a really funny cartoon character, but this whole, but like Will Ferrell who played all these like kind of bush avatars in like Talladega Nights and like Anchorman and stuff, and was very representative Mm -hmm. of these sort of good old boy slash uh, patriarchal authoritarian figures. Um, And McBride is sort of like the more buffoonish, more disempowered kind of inheritor of that. Even even though I think that that's not something that Hill and McBride really have on their mind, I think they're pretty i wouldn't say disengaged politically but I, but i don't but they never really set out to like sort of like i think right critique contemporary well, politics with their stuff no, they like- set
2: out to make shows about characters and settings that they uh, know well and just want to exaggerate a little bit and then that ends up feeling mm-hmm. political because
0: <laughs> of yes.
2: various reasons but i mean i think they said for eastbound they kind of wanted to make for not just um Kenny Powers but some of the side characters like think of the worst guy that you knew from your neighborhood this is him uh they you know it's kind of like amped up caricatures yes. yeah. of people yeah. they disliked in their real life um the side characters are are incredible i mean it's like, so it's so realistic because they did that yeah. uh Tib Heidecker with all of his matching wake forest um gear is my favorite <laughs> example yeah. It was. It's really funny to watch Eastbound with my husband, who is from rural Southern California. So he has some. Oh, interesting. Yes, uh, he's from the Grapes of Wrath. Uh, so he has some like <laughs> Southern yes. ties, but um, he thought that certain elements of the show that I thought were hyper realistic were just very fantastical and unrealistic, like Tim Heidecker's character with all of his matching Wake Forest duds and. Uh, How everybody is wearing neon and has super deep tans and just how big all the houses are, all the trappings of suburban Southern existence that just do not play, you know, to someone from California. It's so different in many ways.
0: Yeah, you talked, too, about, like, and this is where uh, in Eastbound, you know, they really do paint a pretty recognizable suburban reality, in that, and that's down to, like, you know, the inclusion of, like, uh, these, like, South Asian characters oh, yeah, yeah. who are his neighbors and stuff, which is, like, a huge, like, demographic thing in the South where you will see a, you will see a lot of you know, yes. South Asian yeah, people and, represented and, and in the suburbs. You
1: mentioned, Marie, how it sort of resonated for you, this, like, sort of Southern suburban ethos and milieu.
2: Yeah, it did. I mean, my my own neighborhood in suburban Richmond is, um, actually pretty diverse with Asian and South Asian immigration. There's tons of it. And, uh, it's a reality that's not depicted that often. That's kind of the, the beauty of showing a really specific subculture that's in a region, not LA or New York, LA, New York, or generic any town. Um, when you go outside of there, you can get a lot of just, just interesting American demographic mini melting pots that don't get shown a lot. Yeah, that are authentic. Like I think
1: it's really authentic. Like you don't see you don't see stuff like this at all. Like anything that has like a southern tinge will, you know, always kind of like fall prey to some sort of ridiculous caricature. Yeah, I, I feel mean, like one of the
2: other major southern shows of the last of the that was on the same time as Eastbound Justified is the archetype of something that was shot here mostly at burbank i have a little justified location tours thing uh in my head <laughs> uh shot here and just nothing like real kentucky it's like Gunsmoke or maverick or something uh nobody in the southeast wears cowboy boots or cowboy clothes that is completely unheard of yeah. outside of texas it's a texas only texas, texas
0: it's effectively and, hawaii Five-O.
2: yeah But, like, you know, in the Southwest, they do. But on TV, you have all these Southerners who are, like, wearing cowboy hats and cowboy boots in North Carolina. Like, no, you're wearing salmon-colored pants and boat shoes. That's what those guys (laughs) are wearing. You never see it.
1: That's true.
0: So, 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 we love the Bill U that Eastbound sort of takes place in. And it's this really funny like, the great runner throughout the whole series is uh, Kenny recording his audiobook, um, which is full yeah. of just like these completely just like meaningless motivational aphorisms that are just more like self aggrandizing uh, than anything. Um, which is a really it's it's a wonderful parody of just like american celebrity culture the kinds of people who are idolized Um, and especially in the first season which again traces this you know general sort of like narrative outline that is familiar from observe and report where it climaxes in episode five of season one where kenny is at this pitching contest and he uh, throws his fa- He gets his fastball back by knocking out his old rival, Reg McWorthy's eye out. Um, it's incre- this incre- oh, incredibly God. gruesome, it's unnecessary so act of that. violence <laughs> that everybody, in a this hilarious so scene, everybody cheers and applauds and then spontaneously starts wrecking the car dealership they're in. Um, and then immediately afterwards, he scores with his ex, April. And, this is- so- and again, so this is the classic framework, a climactic act of violence that is just rewarded because, you know, these yeah. are the kinds of guys that we love to reward.
2: I was gonna, it's like that B movie framework thing, you know, where you have this guy just like mowing down a, a whole truckload full of um, Nazi police officers, and it's just fine, you know, just, just no consequences, tons of violence, yeah. maybe a, a miscalibration of what your tone or stakes were supposed to be, but it's just awesome.
0: But the other interesting thing about the ending of that first season of East Bounded Down is it actually is, it goes beyond this redemptive ending and it ends on kind of a more downbeat note that is, again, familiar from the 70s. Um, this scene where uh, the major development in the finale is that Kenny thinks he's getting this major league job and he's going off to Tampa with uh, with April to go pitch for the majors again. He learns that the job is a fake, and he ditches April at a gas station rather than face up to reality with her, which is identical to the ending of the great 70s Jack Nicholson classic Five Easy Pieces, um, which I think is something that is, a, is is also a major. Where we're going, thing for it gets guys. colder
2: than hell. So that's the, <laughs> last, the last line of that movie.
0: And Five Easy Pieces is like, I mean, that's like a prototypical new hollywood movie right about a guy who's like really cool and funny but he sucks at the same time By you know, pieces and
2: is, is really interesting to compare to eastbound because it kind of it touches on something that we're probably going to talk about but like it's a it's a movie about an upper class kid who was a piano prodigy and his whole family are classical piano prodigies but when we meet him he's working a blue collar job at the oil rigs in bakersfield and he goes back up right, to right. visit his family and we find out that he's It's a '70s movie about you know the phenomenon of dropping out, but it's complicated by the fact that you know his family are uh, they're libs, and he dropped out to be in real America uh, where people are right wing, and he's got this this girlfriend who's um, just super trad and very much a country girl wants to have his baby, uh, is listens over and over to um, to stand by your man, the (laughs) counterculture yeah the counterculture in that movie is the right-wing culture and the uh, right. and it's it's a point of view that i think is um you see it echoed you know like the real the real rebels are new conservatives or like the real real americans are the ones who are like this and the upper class piano playing a big house having libs in seattle couldn't possibly understand but it's an interesting movie about Jack Nicholson, like choosing this blue-collar uh, kind of redneck lifestyle over what he came up in, and the politics of it being a bit flipped. Because at the time, like the dropout kids were these lefty hippies who went to San Francisco to take drugs with um, with their fellows in the park. In Eastbound and a lot of their stuff, the character is very much an outsider, and he's kind of a, a challenging. I don't want to say punk rock, but like a a challenging societal outsider figure who's also very much like bigoted, reactionary. If he had politics, they're pretty, they're pretty right. Um, that same kind of scenario of like, what is a challenging outsider in the context of this, uh, of this medium?
0: Yeah, and who's ripe to be repurposed as a kind of folk hero? Yeah, right and so i referred to eastbound as a kind of picaresque because it you know moves around from location to location throughout its several seasons gabby did you want to talk a little bit about season two which sees kenny moving to mexico and maybe has some similarities to other shows i
1: i definitely didn't watch season two when it aired because i'm i'm positive i would have remembered it um (laughs) It's it's pretty remarkable. It was absolutely my favorite season. Um, as I went through and watched slash slash rewatch these shows, um, I was like bracing myself a little bit at first because it does take place in Mexico, and this was you know obviously like <laughs> very fertile ground for some you know cringy racism and whatnot. But um, I don't know, like something about it ended up uh feeling very tender to me, and like holistic uh and like i know marie uh earlier in the outline you mentioned something about just like the bro humor and titillation of these shows like being off putting at first but underneath that there's just like a different vision and so um i felt that play out with this this mexico season and uh, after watching the first couple episodes it actually hit me that it reminded me a lot of ted lasso which um yeah (laughs) (laughs) It's very, very counterintuitive because Ted Lasso is seen as this kind of like really saccharine, uh, family friendly kind of comedy. But they're super similar. And and, I mean, even just like the, you know, in the most superficial way that this U.S. sports guy finds himself, uh, you know, um, in a different country and he's sort of bumbling his way through trying to acculturate and... Um, you know, he learns these lessons that he communicates via voiceover every episode. And, you know, they're, they're very funny guys, but there's also, like, these deep insecurities that are actually revealed, and they're talking about male depression. Oh my god, like, mm-hmm. this is, uh, you know, this is so different. But yeah, like, I really just started to see it as just, like, a funnier, more vulgarized version of Lasso, um, and I was just so struck by the similarity and affect between the way Sudeikis plays lasso and and mcbride plays powers and i had no idea that jason sudeikis was literally going to show up in season three so i was watching and i was like oh my I, I was thinking this whole time like ted lasso has to be influenced in some way by kenny powers yeah. and then sudeikis shows up for this like
2: hilarious bro role and i was like there it is <laughs> i think it's that's an interesting point like it's uh, they have kind of the same narrative but very very different tone um Eastbound is like Rare. a, it's a satire of the sports stories that Americans just know and love. Like, heartwarming mm-hmm. sports movie narrative is always going to be a winner. Um, but but, always. Yeah, what yeah. if yeah. that was Underdogs. about a real baseball player instead of some idealized, uh, right. sainted right. figure like Robert Redford in mm-hmm. The Natural or dennis quaid and the rookie what if it was about one of the guys who is racist and takes steroids which is a lot of them i think the yeah. fact that yep. kenny gets his pitch back by roiding again is one of my favorite parts of the show he never gets in trouble for <laughs> it it's like part of his redemptive arc is getting getting those steroids back in his ass there's never any any comments why, why on any there of the be? drug use. Like, and there's so much drug honestly use. it's like no, yeah, you're right. In the late yeah. '90s through the 2000s, there were so many sports stars who were exposed for using steroids, and the tenor—so yep. was John Rocker, yeah, by the way. Of course, the tenor of the disappointed <laughs> reaction to it was wasn't like, "Oh, I'm so mad he took steroids." It's more like, "Oh, I'm so mad he got caught because now he has to stop." I like seeing Barry right. Bonds like <laughs> right. hitting all the like. If yeah, you, like, it's more on, fun. People want people want it. They want Lance Armstrong mm-hmm. to win the Tour de France every time. They want Barry Bonds to be the best hitter of all time. Like, I don't know. It, it's just really funny that that's where the show goes and they don't ever make any apologies for it and Kenny doesn't ever make any apologies for it. So why should he? Some of the best feats of athleticism were committed on steroids. Should they not count? <laughs> should we discount those It's a, it's those a question feats? for, for posterity. Bravery? It takes a lot of bravery <laughs> to inject yourself with something that you bought from your connect at the gym.
0: <sighs> from, <laughs> uh, from Clegg, played by Ben Best, and, I would, and, and Best is credited as a co-creator on Eastbound and Down. I want to make sure we acknowledge his contributions, but I think this is also where he kind Not of parts too. ways Sh-boo, with his sh-bibs. crew.
2: The uh, part right before the pitch context contest where he shows up with, um, with Oxy and Kenny says he doesn't want it <laughs> but maybe he wants it for later and in those two seconds
0: there is for later yeah not right now <laughs>
3: yeah.
0: i said i didn't want the drugs right now but, for, but maybe for later yeah. um, it's
2: funny also that like it's just good acting from Danny Brian but like the one thing he shows shame about is taking the steroids like that uh, keep that, you know keep that shit on the down low it's very much
0: he he takes he takes seriously his role. I think uh, inspiring children. Um, <laughs> s- well, speaking speaking of no apologies, yeah, I wanted to touch on because I think this gets us into the next project we need to talk about. Um, the use of just sort of like racist humor in Eastbound and Down is a huge thread that was just like really eye popping to me. Going back and watching it, like we talked about, like you know, we said bro humor, and we talked about some of like sort of like the crass sexism of it, the titillation. But I mean, like the use whole, of raci- whole
1: season about Mexico,
0: <laughs> whole season about Mexico. But like, but the use of like racist humor, like specifically where just like racism is like just a punchline in this show, is really just kind of eye popping to me on a rewatch in terms of just like how suffused. The show is with it and it's used in like a really just like i think unfocused way like there's i like the like the joke i think of is the one at the end of season one where kenny's giving the speech and he's talking about uh you know the chinks in his armor and he keeps saying that over and over again and the joke is just that he keeps saying this word that sounds like a a slur before Um, or
2: after that uh i think this was before remember when like the harvard crimson ran an article about an asian basketball player And it was like a whole thing with a a punny headline (laughs) using, you know, that, that same construction. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's, but it's, you know, it's funny how you can come from the, the crass, um, lowbrow side of it and the arch Harvard lampoon side of it and arrive at the same, same racist joke. Yes, exactly.
0: Uh, But this is a thread that is just super interesting to me in the work because it becomes, I think, a really interesting theme in the next project that we're going to talk about, which is Vice Principles, um, which is just the idea of these characters, you know, being racist and having you know racist thoughts and tendencies you know i i went back and looked at reviews of eastbound and down and like a, like looking at reviews of all these series to see what critics were saying about them and i saw one review where some where a critic just like referred to kenny as racist and everybody in the comments was like lambasting him he is racist. Like, oh, what an over what an overreacting <laughs> what? <laughs> like lib take to say that kenny powers is racist it's like he's it is it is completely inarguable that somebody who just spews racist invective as easily as he breathes is racist. That's it's it's completely inarguable. Well, it's it's um,
1: it's again like the same conversation we've had for hours about succession like people don't want to well, believe that about characters that they it's love. It's interesting
2: well, Brandon you brought up to me when we were talking about this before that it's racism is kind of one of the last taboos uh in that of course, it's yeah, taboo yeah. for a good reason, but it's taboo even to kind of talk about, like, the role it plays in even polite society and, like, what is the difference between somebody being overtly or implicitly racist? I think the fact right. that they go there and they have the, potent- the ability to just shock and disgust uh, their viewer over and over where, uh, with racism, where you can do that with sexism and it's not as shocking. Like,
0: it's right. really, it doesn't yeah.
2: get the same. Kenny is just as sexist as he is racist and people are not as hot under the collar about it. And if you call him sexist, people aren't as mad as if you call him the character racist. I think racism is right. such a totalizing accusation and description yes. in the culture where I think- you could buy that somebody is a murderer, thief, liar, sinner heretic and sexist right. don't call but me if, racist But yeah. no, i mean with characters <laughs> like if a character is racist yeah. that's a bridge too far god forbid we you know tony soprano can beat somebody to death with his bare hands but he really lost me at the racism
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> but there's this progression in their work that I see, and especially if you look at these two works side by side, Eastbound and Vice Principals. So in Eastbound, I've already, we've already talked about how a lot of the time what stuff I didn't like in the show is when I felt like it, the racism was not being used to to like, you know, build something into Kenny's character or to do something dramatically, but it was just being used as a joke. And that does happen a lot in Eastbound. And... Kenny yeah, is
2: a racist and he happens to be funny. And I think confronting you with that <laughs> uh, and, and making you sit with that is You know, it still provokes interesting uh, reactions.
0: And it's interesting when they start to use this more dramatically. And in season four, there's the whole arc, which I I really wish we had had more time with, um, where Kenny goes on a sports talk show, which is kind of modeled on, I think, like Around the Horn, um, called Sports Sesh, which is hosted by Ken Marino as Guy Young. Love Ken Marino, the greatest American actor. Always wish we had more of him. But Kenny is sort of set up on the show to go up against this other commentator, Dontell Benjamin who uh, is played by Omar Dorsey and uh, the and Dontell's is like he's this bully who's like constantly talking over Kenny and he doesn't want to let anybody else get any airtime and so the way that Kenny eventually bests him is by you know really pushing back and at this point you know he says that he looks like a milk dud or something which is the kind of thing that kind of like ooh put my shoulders up and the way that Dontell takes it a bit is like oh what because I'm black In the tone of the scene which is like very triumphant is like wow Kenny's really getting one over on this guy is really it's, it's it, was, it was one of those kind of like destabilizing events I feel like within the show where you know everybody is applauding this character for something that is a bit, you know, I think there's a real racist edge to Kenny pushing back at Dontell there, but it also ties into something that's dramatic and that is also, I think, true about the reality that the show is describing, which I think is the kind of, like, the inherent promise of racial conflict that some of these sports shows have. Like, if you look at something yeah. like First Take, you know, a lot of these shows are just set up as, like, a white guy versus a black guy, and they're going to really go at it. Um, and that's kind of what that scene is describing.
2: And the ra- And the racial dynamics of sports, generally, and sports Sports media generally are uh, not great, um, and you know we could talk, but yeah. I think in making Kenny so uh, unapologetically bigoted and loud about it, and putting him in all these really uncomfortable situations that are kind of confrontational and uh, don't really have a great outcome for anybody, um, including the viewer, both at home watching HBO and of this right. sports sesh thing, I think. I don't know that the show really pulls off a kind of coherent commentary about the racial dynamics of sports media, but it's certainly kind of scratching at it uh, a lot. Yeah. And nobody else really sure. is. Especially, especially not the kind of idealized sports narratives that it's satirizing. So many of which are about sports overcoming segregation, but it's really not that, not that simple.
0: Right. 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 Well, if we're looking for coherence, um, I think we can look at Vice Principles, which I won't say is like, you know, a perfect show or anything, but I would say is probably the most fully realized thing that these guys have done together. Um, for those who are not familiar with Vice Principles, this was a limited series that was conceived as two seasons of nine episodes that aired on HBO. Um, and it follows these two characters, um, Neil Gamby and Lee Russell, played by Dana McBride and Walton Goggins, who are the sort of frustrated vice principals of the South Carolina Public School, North Jackson High. And they are both hoping to succeed the outgoing principal, but they find that the superintendent has instead hired a qualified black woman, uh, uh, Dr. Belinda Brown, who's played by Kim Gregory. And the fact that neither of them are getting the job, and I think The very clear subtext, you know, as evidenced by the horrible, misogynist, racist things they constantly say about Dr. Brown is that it's the fact that they're being replaced by a black woman that's really getting their hackles up and they form this alliance to plot against her. You know, Vice principals got credit at the time for seeming to be politically prescient, I think, because uh, this aired in 2016, 2017. So you have the Trump campaign, the Trump election. So people are thinking about the sort of like white backlash to Obama's presidency, which the show very neatly, I think, narrativizes and symbolizes um, in this sort of satirical allegory. So the show got some credit for that. But the overall, the reviews and the reception, I think, was kind of mixed because the explicit hard very alienating edge of this material i think put off a lot of critics like i found one review that literally said like 2016 is not the time for this show oh my god you know which is is, uh, which i feel like is kind of a cliche so wrong though yeah is there a better time for the show than 2016 i don't know but i mean at the same time it's like i'm not really mad at critics who like didn't like the show or anything like that because i think if we accept that what these guys are trying to do in these projects is to destabilize the viewer a bit and put them on unsure footing not all viewers are going to take to that very well you're going to have mixed reactions that come about from that and you know mcbride gave some i think very (laughs) defensive interviews where he said similar things um around this time these guys are not always the best i think at like defending their work very eloquently but i think it it kind of speaks for itself. It's this great, you have this execution, again, of that template from Observe and Report. In the first season, the real destabilizing event of the narrative is in the second episode when they go to Brown's house for, I think, just like a recon mission, and they end up burning it to the ground in what is effectively, if not explicitly, a hate crime. You know, they eject her from the school, they blackmail her, they nearly destroy her career. Um, And in the second season, after Gambi is shot by a masked assailant the show puts him on this steady track to redemption without ever again addressing the major wrongs that he's committed without ever actually holding him to account for what he's done to dr brown he and russell can both get their redemption at the end of the series and this stuff is just forgotten which i find to be an extremely you know powerful
2: yeah it's a good show you know
0: narrative an extremely powerful allegory for the the themes that it's dealing with
2: it's the tightest of all their stuff it's like this v-shape where the first season they're going down into this horrible pit and in the second season they climb out of it uh maybe they don't quote unquote deserve to but One thing I like about all of their work is that they show you uh, people behaving just these horrible, reprehensible ways. And there's no one saying, no one comes out and says, this is going to be okay, or here's why that's bad. You just have to watch it and sit with it. I certainly don't think they're endorsing any of the behavior. More like just depicting it. The first and third shows they did together, McBride is playing a celebrity, a larger-than-life figure who has a lot of money and at least local fame. And Vice Principal is his worst character. like his The character that does the most awful things, has the least audience identification potential, is the least funny and charismatic, is also the most normal. He's the guy next door. It's, you know, what darkness yeah. lurks in the heart of the common man who feels this reactionary resentment towards a... Uh, black woman getting promoted ahead of him
0: yeah and i mean we should say also that i mean when we when we talk about the treatment of women in these shows too that um one thing that they have gotten better at. Um, and one thing, I think they've made room for this from the beginning, but one thing they've certainly gotten better at is making room for extraordinary female comic performances within their shows. Kim Gregory is absolutely one of those. It's a really great, I think, performance where she does at times lean into caricature and stereotype a bit, even as she, she shows all different sides of this woman who effectively exits the narrative after the first half And she of does the show. get to move up uh, in the world.
2: She gets a happy ending. I think the, the one thing that Vice principles does in terms of patting you on the head and making you think it's okay is showing her at her new better job like you know
0: yeah where she doesn't have to deal with these guys right
2: yeah she doesn't have to deal with these guys presumably she's physically
1: well doesn't she she even rebuff russell at the end like he 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 goes to her yeah Yeah, so
2: she does have her little redemption well she does get her moment of saying everything's okay for me i don't need to necessarily forgive you or be your friend like actions have consequences leave me alone you have to watch a long time to get to that. I think I started the show and I couldn't finish it for a long time um, because yeah, it's I just really confrontational. I totally understand, yeah. Uh, but it's good to be confrontational about certain themes.
1: But it's, yeah, it's it's similar to people's viewing experience with Succession, right,
2: Brendan? Like that we've just, we've continually talked really? about, I right? Really? I found that show just delightful. I'm sick in the head. I just think <laughs> it's funny. <laughs>
0: Well, this is the thing I was talking about earlier of like, satire being, a, it's only, satire only has power. I mean, Marie and I have talked so much about like the satire bro meme, like that image macro with the, the you know, the, the bro in the tank top and the cap who's saying, you right. know, satire requires a clarity of purpose, lest it be mistaken mm-hmm. for that which it seeks to criticize and basically saying if people can misinterpret your satire, you're doing it wrong, which is like so right. exactly incorrect, it sort of makes me wonder if it's not, you know, maybe wrong for us to get all of our critical sensibilities from internet memes but that's a topic yeah it's uh, like for another day If like the
2: satire is not at least doing a pretty good job of being the thing it's satirizing it's not effective because you need to it- right you need to be made uncomfortable uh, in order to it recognize It needs to be true. It
0: needs to be problem. true. The audience yes. the audience has to be implicated in some way is what I think of as being an essential component for satire to be effective. If you remain outside of and above the characters, this is where I connected to Succession, Gabby, where, you know, people always pe- people will say people who we think are I think viewing the show maybe in a wrong-headed way will say, "You know, you're supposed to hate the characters on Succession," right? It's like, "No, the show doesn't work if you hate the characters. The show relies on you liking the characters." And That doesn't mean that you miss the point of it's like larger political worldview or it doesn't mean there's it means there's
1: something wrong with you no it means that it's more it
0: means that it's more resonant if you can if you can locate some of yourself or some of your own humanity inside these people that actually is what gives the work it's staying power and so that's where it's it's, you get into the interesting question of whether you can have a great satire without like intention as i said like mcbride and hill i don't think are people who were set out to make a political point but they make stuff that i find to be incredibly powerful because I think they operate from this point of view that is at least halfway yeah, inside the thing it's they're It's so critiquing.
2: confrontational mm-hmm. it's so challenging. Eastbound in particular is so good at implicating the audience like like you, the racist humor which we talked about is like Kenny's hilarious I'll watch him do anything. I don't like watching him do this. I don't love it and yet here I am so you know I'm, I'm the asshole you know Vice Principals is their most confrontational and I don't know unhappy Viewing experience. In terms of its setting and characters, it has the most um, audience identification potential because it's about regular people
0: the reality is so frighteningly plausible yeah. to like obviously you know it's satirical it's exaggerated but I mean there's so much great stuff in the show about this school this public school as like this microcosm for America and of this breeding ground for surveillance for authoritarianism like the idea that Russell in the second season becomes principal and the school immediately turns into this parody of like real world dictatorships mm-hmm. which is also accompanied by real world and very realistic uh, security measures like an on-campus police officer and like metal detectors at the entrances and stuff stuff that is just everyday reality that accompanies this like frightening authoritarian shift that is happening inside the school and then you know we were talking about the women on the show and the other character i wanted to talk about was amanda snodgrass who is the love interest on the show and the treatment of sort of like the love interest theme within these hill projects um you know there's always this component of
3: (laughs) <laughs>
0: well, but there's also this this component to the redemptive storyline where the outsider, the anti-hero always gets rewarded with the woman, right? Like he always right. gets the girl. She's the prize. He always gets the girl. As a com- that always accompanies his uh, his redemption. Again, usually through violence. It's Colette Wolfe in Observe and Report. It's Katie Mixon um, in Eastbound and Down. And in Vice Principals, it's Amanda Snodgrass, played by George King, who I think is actually Scottish, which, like, really confounded me when I found that out. Yeah, me too, yeah. <laughs> and, and she is, in some ways, I think, one of the, like, odder or just, like, least plausible romantic partners. Um, you know, in Observant Report, Colette Wolfe is kind of a loser, like Ronnie is. Like, she's, like, working in a low-wage job. She doesn't have a lot of prospects. And, you know, like, they're at least kind of the same class background or whatever. Eastbound, it's like, you know, April has got this wild side to her. And, you know, she and Kenny are actually very well-matched. Um, from a certain point of view in Vice Principals Gamby is so like repulsive he has that like awful little mustache you know you can't see how like, like, like
2: two beautiful blondes in his ex-wife and, and new love interest right exactly I yeah. love
0: That's right. Busy Phillips, Phillips. his ex-wife yeah. Phillips who is so funny yeah me too my favorite um, I think one of my so favorite line jokes. readings
2: from any of their projects is when she says at the very end to the to the new love interest you should write Nicholas Sparks books as like <laughs> <my> her <laughs> suggestion <laughs> I, she's so excited to say um, comes
1: out with that oh it's so funny she's sweet her and her husband who like eventually forms a nice little friendship with with yeah. Shay Wiggum, right?
0: Yeah. <laughs> Again, that's another great joke because Shay Wiggum is is the uh, the stepdad who is Gamby is constantly antagonizing, and Shay Wiggum is always like so supportive and so soft spoken. Right. He's always like he's always like Neil. That's a great idea. It's like you got a good thing going, Neil. And he seems like the most normal dude. The funniest payoff to that joke is in the second season where Gamby like moves into this like Unabomber cabin in the woods because he thinks he's being targeted by assassins, and Shay Wiggum is like, Yeah, that's a good idea. This place looks cool. And you realize this guy is like as insane as anybody else in this universe your average
2: suburban uh homeowner has the most batshit reactionary tendencies lurking one inch deep oh absolutely all you have to do is just sitting there waiting trespass (laughs) one time and they're setting up grenade booby traps (laughs) those little things from vietnam what do you call bouncing (laughs) betties oh my god (laughs)
0: <laughs> but the great payoff to the snodgrass thing i want to tie in and marie you actually pointed this out to me is that she really if you want to take this as a whole like allegory for like right-wing reaction in america or like reconstruction i think as you suggested um you can take snodgrass as sort of standing in for like for white women white femininity right, for their role within the
2: biggest enabler white femininity of fascism within this, or racial intolerance in america yeah the reconstruction parallel is really interesting
1: yeah within but... this
0: structure of Sorry, power anyway, go ahead. because the because the, the the big payoff with snodgrass at the end is, is in the penultimate episode of the series when gamby you know knows he's going to go after russell and he's going to risk his position at the school so he goes to snodgrass and says i have to confess something to you and he tells her about the arson of brown's house and king has this amazing reaction where she looks like her brain is short-circuiting and she likes like i have to go throw up and then two scenes later she's showing up at Gambi's house and it's like okay how can i help you with your revenge plan? against Russell and it's never mentioned again. It just why gets it dropped be? like everything else. Why would it be? Why would it ever get met? why would we ever go back to this hate crime that is like the no, central event of this entire narrative?
2: Memory hole it. Again, you know, it has just enough plausible deniability to not be a hate crime. They technically did it for professional jealousy reasons and that professional jealousy stemmed from racial resentment, so it's one it's one degree <laughs> removed from just being a hate crime. Therefore, it's fine right. we just
0: didn't want her to have this job for dot 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 yeah, reasons Yeah, so
2: we burned her house down it was fine terrorized her her children yeah. in the middle of the night you know all that stuff you yeah, know that was
0: it really was very, bad like that it turned was a lot of
2: people off and too bad because the show really earns that moment i think
0: it is quite a it is quite a sort of a gauntlet being thrown down it's like if you like you have to be able to to handle this or like you have to be at least willing to see where it goes
3: yeah after again
0: and I, yeah a lot of people were not on board which i don't again i don't really blame people for being for finding that distasteful it obviously is and it's obviously yes. meant to be but i also think it is clearly part of the intentional design of the series um, for the audience to be alienated by that, um, but the last uh, performance I want to talk about because this gets us into finally, finally, I'm about to make the, the news, gemstones. bitch.
3: <laughs> My other favorite line from that Is show. That <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: is Edie Patterson as Jen Abbott, who is another teacher at North Jackson who fixates on Gambi and is revealed to be the ultimate villain of the series. She's revealed to be the masked assailant who shoots Gambi um, in you know out of jealousy uh, because he's gotten together with Snodgrass at that point. And she is the common enemy that Gambi and Russell have to unite against at the end. The other parallel I thought of um, was the hateful eight, which uh, is also about two guys on sort of like, opposite sides in this uh, elaborate allegory for American history who unite and put their differences aside so that they can take down a crazy broad um, that is a, that is eventually <laughs> what happens in vice principles in both halves of the narrative these guys are teaming up to take down a woman and it's but it's the thing that ultimately seals their redemption at the end
1: and two goggins.